Welcome to the Graceway Bible Church Podcast, a place to be immersed in teachings from God's Word. We hope you will be blessed by the Word of God as we discover together what our Heavenly Father wants us to understand. If you would like more information about our church, how to know Jesus as your Savior, or teachings from the Bible, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org. Join us now as we dive into God's Word. We have a question for you this morning, and that is, how, how do we know God? There are lots of people who claim to be able to instruct us. There are those who would uh, want to take us aside or take us into certain programs or whatever. Uh, in the final analysis, how is it that we know the Lord? And the answer really <clears throat> is right in front of us, as we'll see this morning as he has sent his son for that purpose. Will you stand and read with me these words from John chapter 1 as we continue our study this week on John 1, verses 14 to 18. I'll read the white print if you'll join me in reading the yellow. John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Thank you, and please be seated. <clears throat> it's the only begotten Son of God who reveals God, who manifests him. And we want to focus on that today. I label this passage of Scripture in my own mind, the Word incarnate, the Word that we've talked about in the first section, the first few verses of John's gospel, takes upon himself human flesh. And so these words, very simple, as we begin here in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. John summarizes in those words an amazing, mysterious, marvelous truth that goes way beyond the comprehension of uh, any of us, really. The Word is the eternal creator God. We saw that back in the first couple of verses. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him. There isn't anything that exists that he did not make. <clears throat> and so, this one who is called the Word, it's an interesting name for Jesus. The word logos in Greek means literally a word, so it refers to the words that we use, the way we communicate, but it also is used many times in a, in a broader sense, kind of a metaphorical sense. If I said to you, could I have a word with you, what would you expect? 
Yeah, not one word, right, but a conversation. And so we use the word that way. And so when the Bible's using it that way, it's using it in more of a philosophical, or at least John is here, using it in more of a philosophical way. He's talking about a discourse or communication or reason. And so this word logos was used in Greek uh, literature, in in the uh, philosophical language. The Hebrews understood it this way as well. And so when John begins his presentation about Jesus, he uses a term that would have been familiar to them. We we don't use the word logos that much anymore, but, uh, but we're familiar with the concept. It is the expression of God. It is the manifestation of who he is. And so this eternal son communicates who God is. That's, that's why John is using the term word here, to speak about someone who reveals, someone who manifests, someone who communicates. And what we find is that as you go through the Scriptures, and when you take this concept and you go back into the Old Testament, you find that throughout the Scriptures, it's the second person of the Trinity who communicates for God and who communicates about God. So he's the one, whenever we have speech, whenever we have revelation, it's the second person of the Trinity. Sometimes he appears as the angel of the Lord. Sometimes he appears as he did to Moses, for example, in the burning bush. And so when you go back and you start with Genesis, you have creation and God saying, let there be light. Let the waters be divided. Let there be plants and animals on the earth. And that communication, that speaking, is Jesus carrying that out. So the plan comes from the mind of the Father, the execution, the explanation, the, uh, the effecting of all of that is carried out by this one who is called the Word, by Jesus. And so he is the one who communicates. He communicated to Abram and to Moses The Bible says, I think, five times that God appeared to Moses. But the New Testament says, no one has seen God at any time. So it wasn't God the Father that appeared to Moses or that appeared to Abram. It was the Word. It was the Son of God. It was the second person of the Trinity who appeared with the idea of manifesting some kind of truth about God to these individuals in the Old Testament. And then you have Revelation. We have all these, all these portions of God's Word that are written as He reveals Himself to Moses and, and to Samuel and to David and to Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth. All of that revelation is what, is what Jesus brought before He was Jesus, when He was the Logos, when He was the Word who existed with God, who also was God. He's the one who communicated. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. See, there's a word. The word was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, 
and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So Jesus is the one who reveals the truth about the Father. And he, does, he did that throughout the Old Testament as he came to saints of old and as he revealed truth, and now he does it in the New Testament. Someone has said, with all these gigantic radio telescopes that we have pointed toward the heavens and we're looking for, for messages from, from out there somewhere in space, and the person goes on to say, at times the Lord must be wondering, is anybody listening? I've already sent you that message from outer space, and that message is Jesus. That message is Jesus and the truth that he has revealed to us. Now, the word became flesh then. This one who existed in eternity, this one who manifests the Father, became flesh, and that's an amazing kind of thing. Spirit for all eternity, he assumed human flesh. He did that through the story that we celebrate at Christmas, right? It was through the virgin birth. It was through the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and telling to her, her that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon her and that she would conceive in her womb. The angel said these words to Joseph in, in uh, recounting the story to him. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so this incarnation takes place through a miracle that we call the virgin birth. And that miracle was only the beginning of miracles as we think about all of the ramifications of this this, uh, God-in-flesh person. He was incarnated. He was placed in the flesh. This one who was spirit in eternity past assumes humanity, takes upon himself the flesh of us as human beings. John summarizes in five words this amazing concept that takes most theologians chapters and pages in their books. I listed just two of them. One of my favorites is Dr. Charles Ryrie, and he has the gift of being succinct. As you can see there, he takes two chapters and 13 pages to describe and discuss the ramifications of the incarnation of Jesus. Erickson is another well-respected theologian, much larger volume, and he takes five chapters and 82 pages to discuss this thing called the, the incarnation of of Jesus. John says it so simply. God is just a way of cutting through all of that, doesn't he? He says, and the word became flesh. Now, can I explain all of that? No, and neither can these men, because there's something that goes way beyond, as we'll see in a moment, it goes way beyond our ability to grasp. But how God communicates that to us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is something that the theologians call the hypostatic union. Now, you have to know a little bit about the hypostatic union, but it doesn't matter whether you remember all of that truth or not. It's really more of a practical thing that we'll come back to. But in the ancient church, Cyril of Alexandria taught this doctrine called the hypostatic union. 
in his day, there were people who were saying that Jesus was a man and that he did God-like things. There were other people who were saying that Jesus was God and he appeared to be a man or he used a human being. And what Cyril taught and what the scriptures teach in this statement, the word became flesh, is that what we have is a unique individual. And so the Council of Chalcedon for, for, for years, as you can see, it was 451 AD. For years, there was this discussion going back and forth as to those who said that Jesus was just a man and others who said he was God, but he was not really a man because how could you have both of them? And so what they decided all the way back in 451 AD is what you and I believe today, and that is that this one, Jesus, is full deity, that's number one, and perfect humanity, number two, united without mixture, change, division, or separation, that's number three, in one person forever. So I want you to say that with me, all right? There are five key elements to this nature of Jesus. He is full deity, perfect humanity, united without mixture, change, separation, in one person, forever. So from that day on, from that first Christmas, from that Bethlehem stable, actually from the conception that took place in the womb of Mary, Jesus will always be the God-man. He will always be this theanthropic person. One person with two natures, and the natures are never mixed or blended or obscured, and that becomes really hard for us. It becomes really hard, and people have struggled with, over that because Jesus was both God and man. The Bible says, for example, that he emptied himself. Some people teach, well, he emptied himself of some of his attributes. But if that happened, then Jesus is not really God. He's somehow less than God. And so we, we, can't, we can't go there that that's what happened. So he emptied himself only of the outward manifestation of his glory. When he came to this earth, he didn't look on the outside like he looked when he was in heaven. It was incognito. He was under the skies, if you will. Um, he manifests also the divine human paradoxes. You know what a paradox is, right? A paradox is two things that are true that seem to be um, unable to, to live together. For example, the Bible says that God never, ever slumbers or sleeps. And yet the Bible says that Jesus slept in the boat. The Bible says that God cannot die. But it also says that Jesus died. So what some people want to do is say, well, God can't die in his God side, Jesus couldn't, but in his human side he could die. No, that, that's what the Council of Chalcedon said is not true. What we have is an inscrutable combination of God and man in one person without mixture, without separation, without division forever. And so you have this person who, who exhibits these qualities that are just beyond our comprehension. 
how can Jesus, who is omniscient as God, say, I don't know when the day of my coming is. That's reserved for the Father. And the answer is, I don't know how he can say that. All I know is that's what he says. And so what we have is God and man in one person. And that creates for us a lot of difficulty if you, uh, if you get into all of that. Secondly, he also appeared as an ordinary individual. There was nothing outstanding about him in terms of his physical appearance. The, uh, the book of Isaiah says this about him. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's a prophetic statement about the servant of the Lord who would come, about Jesus. And so he was not a Hollywood figure. He was not someone who wowed people with his persona in terms of the physical aspects of his persona. I don't know about you, but, but I think that's encouraging. Young people, there's so much pressure, so much, so much uh, emphasis put on what you look like. And it's interesting to know that it wasn't what Jesus looked like. It wasn't that he was so stunningly handsome that everybody was drawn to him. And yet, yet there is an attraction, isn't there? Uh, He possessed all of the attributes of deity. He possessed all of the attributes of humanity. And so as they're brought together, what was attractive about Jesus was his person, It was not his looks. It was how he related to people. And so when you talk with Jesus, you had his full attention. You had his his gracious working and relationship with him. And that's an encouragement because every one of us can do that. You can be like Jesus in that sense. You don't have to be the most beautiful person on the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, there are some real issues sometimes with being all that pretty, right? Um, So anyhow, he had everything in humanity except for the sinful nature of Adam. And how was that prevented? That was prevented by the virgin birth. So he doesn't have a human father. He has a divine father, and that makes him a unique individual. So, this Jesus then became flesh. And the text goes on to tell us that he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Uh, Suppose you and I wanted to go to the White House today. Do you suppose we could get in? Nope. I don't think so. Um, Jesus dwelt among us. That is amazing when you begin to ponder that and think about it. The Bible says that he tabernacled. The word that he used there for, for dwelt means to tabernacle, means to pitch your tent. If I could use sort of a, a disparaging example, it would be a little bit like what homeless people do when they go into a park somewhere or, or they find a, a corner on a street and they 
dwell there. They established their home there. Well, Jesus came to this planet and he pitched his tent here. He dwelt among us as the people of the earth. Um, in the Old Testament, when God tabernacled among people, he took up residence in a tent, didn't he? He, he dictated that to Moses, and they built the tabernacle. And God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and nobody was allowed to go in there except the priest when he took care of the incense. And then one time a year, they offered a special sacrifice. And so God dwelt among his people, but, but it was sort of a detached dwelling. But in the New Testament, Jesus lived among people. He actually lived and walked among people. And so God is living among us, John says. So this word, this eternal communication, this eternal personal um, uh, message from God took up personal residence with us. And the Bible says that Jesus humbled himself in the process. He emptied himself, as we said, of his outer glory. He lived a simple life as a carpenter, a builder, for much of his, of his, uh, his life here on this planet. And there was nothing about him especially that was particularly physically attractive. He wasn't unattractive, but um, he had few possessions. He says, I don't have a home of my own. I don't have a bed of my own. I don't have any of the things that many of us consider as essential. And so he dwelt among us. And, and what strikes me is how he mixed with people. Um, he called fishermen and tax collectors and a political zealot to be his disciples, didn't he? So he apparently was home with fishermen. Some of them were his cousins. He was at home with tax collectors that I'll never understand. He was, um, he, he was at home with a political zealot. He was at home with, with all sorts of people as he called them to be his disciples. He dined with the wealthy, and he touched lepers. He had no problem going into the home of these Pharisees and religious leaders and so forth and sitting down and eating with them. But he also had no problem when a, when a leper came or a blind man came or a paralytic came. He had no problem reaching out and touching those individuals. And I'm impressed with the fact that he sat down with a Samaritan woman at the well. A woman who had had five husbands and now was living with someone else. And Jesus sat down and had a personal conversation with her. People were comfortable in his presence he dwelt among us. Jesus is here for you. He came to be next to you. He came to minister to you and to communicate God the Father to you. And so it's amazing what the Scriptures teach us about this one called Jesus and how wonderful he is. Thirdly, in this passage, the Bible tells us that the word, Jesus, revealed God's glory. John says, we saw his glory. All right? To, to see in this passage means to, to apprehend, to notice, to take note of. And John says, as, as we watched him, we saw the glory of God. Now, immediately when you think glory of God, 
most of the time we go back to the Old Testament, don't we? We go back to the things that we have read about in the Scriptures about this Shekinah glory. But, but John makes it clear that it was not his physical appearance. He didn't light up. He didn't glow. He didn't have neon signs fixed to him or something like that. Instead, what the Scriptures tell us is that it was talking with Jesus that was so wonderful. And the reason that was so wonderful is because Jesus brings together the, the grace and the truth of the very character of God. And so people just flocked around him. At one point, the disciples wanted to chase the children away. They loved to be with him. And Jesus said, let them alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so Jesus attracted people. He attracted people because of how he related to people. That's the key. It says we saw his glory. It was the glory of of the only begotten because he was his father's son. When I say he was his father's son, what I'm saying is that Jesus was everything that God is and that when he came to this earth and he walked among people, when he dwelled among us, he literally brought God to us. Not in the visual, not in the, in the physical appearance, but he brings God's nature. Hebrews said he is the exact representation of his image. And so Jesus, as he talked with people, manifested the very person of his father. And so he does that by virtue of this grace or truth through interpersonal relationships. Jesus, as he relates to people, manifests the nature and the character of God. Um, Again, in this very passage, verse 18, John says, no one has seen God at any time. So no one has actually seen all of the glory of God. There are glimpses of him in various places, but apparently it's either severely restricted or it's Jesus, the the Lagos, who is revealing those things. And so John says, the only begotten of the Father has explained him. And so finally we find that the key here is that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He possessed grace and truth in the perfect balance, all right? Jesus always did the right thing. Think of it that way. You and I are engaged in conversations with people, and sometimes we are truthful to a fault, right? Sometimes we kind of take delight in pointing out somebody's problems or issues or difficulties. And so it may be true, but it's hurtful. Sometimes in conversations with people, we hold back, and we hold back too much. We are gracious with people. We are accepting of people when we ought to be more confrontational. With Jesus, it was always the perfect balance. Always grace and truth. And that's what manifests God to people here. He always spoke the truth, 
As a matter of fact, he says in John 14, as you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, he doesn't always speak all the truth. He doesn't always say everything he knows about an individual. And I think that's wise for us too, right? Sometimes you know something about somebody and the conversation is presented or, or you have an interaction with that person and there's a tendency to want to say, yeah, but I know the real deal. Jesus doesn't always go there. What he says is true, but he doesn't necessarily say all of the truth. I think that's really important to understand. And he is always gracious. He always manifests the grace of God. Grace is God's help, right? It's, it's help that we don't deserve at our own expense. And Jesus was always about helping the individual. Now, if somebody is always truthful with you, isn't that refreshing? Isn't that liberating? When you know that a person always speaks the truth and you can trust that person, that's amazing. And especially if that person is always committed to your highest good, if that person is always there to help you, that's Jesus. And Jesus would say, I'm just doing what my dad does. I'm just relating to you the way he relates to you. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Study Jesus. Read his words. Delve into his relationships with the people that come across his path as we read his story in the book here. Nobody has seen God at any time. It's the only begotten Son of God. It's the one who was born of God and who was born of a woman who manifests the very nature of God. So I put it this way to pull this together. God's grace and truth, Jesus' grace and truth rather, manifests God's glory. So two things then come out of that. One, we ought to know Jesus. If you want to know God, it's really knowing Jesus. That's what the Scripture says. So if you want to know God, study Jesus. And then I think the, what comes out of that is we should be practicing grace and truth. He says we are to glorify God even as he glorified God. So that means that we need to be sensitive to practicing grace and truth. Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life. Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org, and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through his Son, Jesus Christ.